Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education, where we dive into the world of virtual reality for teaching and learning. Today, we have a special guest with us. Joining us is Nick Shackleton-Jones. He has a 30-year track record of shaping future learning approaches to numerous public and private organizations. Nick is the winner of several awards related to people development strategy, innovation, and learning content. Nick is here today to unpack one of his books that I read, which is How People Learn, and we're going to tie this into virtual reality. So welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you for having me on. It's a whole bunch of topics, frankly, that I'm excited to talk about. Learning, obviously, VR, um, because, well, I've been fascinated by VR for some time, so great to be here. You know, speaking of that, Nick, can you tell us a, a story or a vignette of the first time you tried VR or even VR-related uh, interactions lately? Oh, yeah. Heck, yeah. I can tell you about the first time and the latest time. So the first time I was working at Siemens Communications in Milton Keynes in a corner office, and I had a team of Flash developers, and we were really keen on pushing the boundaries. My background is psychology, so we were trying to really understand how we could apply Every, most contemporary cognitive psychology, neuroscience to what we knew. And I was convinced at the time that VR was going to be the future. And we bought at, at quite considerable expense back then, one of the first virtual reality headsets. And it was an atrocious experience. It was fantastically laggy. It was this big clunky device that suspended, I wish I could remember the name of it, two little LCD screens, you know, about here. And you could kind of stare at it and, and you could it gave you the impression that you were sort of looking at a um, like a TV on a wall some distance away. And, and I remember thinking, blimey, it's going to have to get a lot better than this. And, and I then progressed to Google Glass. We bought and, and experimented with Google Glass before that all kind of collapsed as well, which was obviously AI, AR rather than VR. Um, and then I bought every version of Oculus, the Oculus device, um, and currently have the Quest 2, which, which I used just a couple of nights ago. Um, there are some fantastic games on the Quest 2. And, and I also bought one of those for every member of my team. I used to be the chief learning officer at Deloitte for a short period in the UK um, and during the pandemic. And I was really fascinated by how we could use VR to connect as a team. And so I, I just bought a headset for everybody on the team and, and we all used them, experimented with them, talked about how we could use them in our work. So yeah, perhaps a slightly longer answer than you were looking for, but... Um, one that reflects my passion for the topic. Yeah, and in your book, actually, later on, I think it's somewhere around chapter eight, you talk about, you know, using VR and your, it was like the, a gray squirrel moment. Can you talk about that quick story? <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. I think one of the, the worst things that happens with new technology is people apply new technology to old thinking. And one of the ways that I've seen that recurrently within education and learning is people thinking, great, let's create a virtual classroom. And it's like, why the heck would you do that? It's like the absolute worst thing you can do. So let me let me get straight, right? You're taking a technology which can deliver any experience, any experience. You could be boating in the Amazon, you could be, you know, uh, skydiving. And what are you going to do with it? You're going to force people to sit down and shut up in a classroom. So 
this happened to me when I was at BP and somebody invited me to, um, they were developing a virtual induction program um, and they wanted to save costs basically. And their wizard wheeze was to create a 3D virtual environment. So people didn't have the headsets. It was just a virtual environment. And I was asked because I was head of learning innovation to join the pilot and I was fairly new. And this was a terrible mistake on their part because I joined this pilot experiencing thinking, well, this is amazing. I'm so excited by this. I wonder what it's going to be. I wonder if it's going to be like a wild west environment or we're going to be chasing around in space or, you know, building something together. And I joined. And as soon as I joined, I was transported into the, what I can only describe as this grotesque kind of institutionalized. It was, it was like a mental institution, sort of white walls in every direction. And um, I thought, well, this is wild. And then somebody approached me in a green t-shirt and I realized that I had a blue t-shirt um, and told me I had to go and sit down in a classroom. So I, was, I get into this classroom environment and there was a sort of instructor standing next to a whiteboard. I thought, this is, this is like somebody's hell. And I was told to sit down and, and sort of shut up basically. And then I did the worst thing possible. I started chatting because this was a pilot and I wanted to chat with other people, other students. And it, I used the chat box and I was like, what do you think of this? You know, how could this be better? And I was told to shut up like, and to stop talking because it was distracting for the instructor. And then the whole thing, you know, came to a, a, a rather terrible end because I, I get very antsy. As many people who, who have been through school themselves and found that a difficult experience, I get very antsy in that kind of environment. So I was sitting there listening to the person delivering a PowerPoint presentation in a virtual environment, which is nuts, by the way. Why would you do that? And then I thought, well, I wonder what I, wonder what I can do. And I right clicked on the, the flip chart where the PowerPoint presentation was being projected and it had upload media. And I thought, huh. I wonder what happens if I upload media. And I just chose a random picture, which was this kind of giant menacing squirrel. Um, I won't go into why I had a picture of a giant menacing squirrel, but it looked like this. And, and I uploaded that media and I thought, huh, wow, that worked. And there was this picture on this, this flip chart, this giant menacing squirrel. And I thought, I, wonder, I, I guess that's just me that's seeing that. And then the instructor stopped, <laughs> stopped talking. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I realized, oh, uh, uh, maybe maybe it's not just me. Um, and it turned out the instructor couldn't figure out how to get the slides back up. And so I was banned uh, from the, the re-reading <laughs> experience. But it was a beautiful illustration. And, and exactly the same thing happened in corporate life when I was at Deloitte, frankly. Somebody told me, hey, we've built this amazing virtual university. And I was like, oh, right, let's have a look at it two enormous glass and steel buildings, classrooms as far as the eye could see. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You've taken a technology which is liberating and you've introduced the same conceptual constraints, the same toxic model, delivery model, you know, that we were forced to do outside it because of cost constraints. You know, it's just nuts. Don't do that. So, yeah, I mean, that's a kind of an obvious thing not to do if that's helpful with VR. Speaking of liberating, I want to unpack sort of one of the overarching premises of your book, which is this concept of affective context, which you argue that emotions and feelings are not peripheral to learning, but central. So talk a bit about that, because, you know, there, I've read a lot of books on learning and, you know, the, yeah. they always think that it it's about thinking and thinking leads to storing in long-term memory and you're backing that up and, and trying to argue that maybe it's more about emotion. Yeah. Hundreds of years ago, people believed that we had a soul. And if you'd said to somebody, some people still do, we don't have a soul. They would have thought you were crazy. 
So sometimes people think that what I'm saying is emotion is terribly important to learning. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying emotion is learning. I'm saying there is no such thing as thinking. It's a radical thing to say. But all of what we think of as thinking is actually feeling. That's the central premise of the book. But in relation to, I don't want to get too philosophical, but in relation to what we're talking about, it means that memory is an effective and emotional process. And we know this from research, which you've just basically been misunderstanding for decades. You look at Elizabeth Loftus, for example, found that eyewitness testimony is terribly unreliable and can be altered by the effective, the emotional dimension of the words that you use when you're asking somebody to remember something. Um, Bower and Clark in 1969, for example, found that storytelling massively increases people's memory for things. Why is that? Well, it's because storytelling has an emotional element. If you look back at your life, it will be the emotional episodes. I regularly, in fact, two days ago, was asking people what they remember from school. It's only the emotional stuff. Friends, school lunches, which they hate, school uniforms, teachers who terrified them, teachers who cared about them. And so we just systematically misunderstood what's happening when people remember and when they learn. And if you're thinking, well, that's all kind of old research, Nick. Look at people like Damasio, look at um, Mary Helen Imodino-Yang, look at Yak Pangsep on neuroscience. Basically, let me put it as bluntly as I can. When you move around the world, when things happen to you, you store your emotional reactions to them, which are very subtle. It's not angry, happy, sad, fun. They're very subtle emotional reactions to everything that you experience. And you use those stored emotional reactions to reconstruct. And that's what we call memory. And that's how learning happens, which sounds bewildering because it means that even if you're just sitting in a classroom looking at words on a screen, all that's happening is those words are not going into your memory. What's happening is that your reactions to those words are going into your memory and you will reconstruct that. So in practice, and we can talk more about this, it means that there are two kinds of things you can do. You can either find out what somebody cares about because what somebody cares about governs what they react to. So if somebody is passionate about dinosaurs, you can feed them information on dinosaurs because they have a reaction to that. They're like, wow, I never knew that. That's amazing. But if somebody doesn't care about something like algebra, then you have to create an experience which makes them care, which, you know, gets them to react. And you always do that in the same way by building on what they already care about. So a good example would be tr teaching kids maths. So, well, they don't care about it. Well, what do they care about? Well, maybe they care about, I don't know, maybe some of them want to be entrepreneurs. Okay, let's talk about how becoming an entrepreneur will necessitate an understanding of these kind of mathematical concepts. So you always kind of link something that they don't care about to something they do. So I'll kind of stop there and um, probably enough yeah. of that. Yeah. And the terms that you allude to in the book that sort of talk about this care versus not care is push versus pull, which, yes. you know, I've kind of used loosely in some of my talks and speeches and even just with my kids. So, you know, if they don't care, you know, you say we need to uh, push them along. They need a little bit more help. So this is where I find with the work I've done with VR that it can be incredibly helpful as a push tool because, you know, they need something, as you talked about, fantastical, like this amazing tropical rainforest experience if you're learning food chains or food webs. Talk to me about how VR might help in this process of pushing someone into caring about learning. Yeah, it, that's, uh, let me talk about this. Then. So push is when, as you say, you're trying to make somebody care about something they don't. If we do it with animals, we do it with electric shocks, don't we? Everyone sort of gets that. If you want an animal to react to the color blue, 
that they don't much care about, but to have a sort of a certain reaction, like an aversive reaction, what do you do that with? An electric shock? Well, because pain is something that we know that they care about. And if we want students to care about things, um, we might give them a test which terrifies them um, and that anxiety is pushed back. I remember the day when um, we would sort of hit people. Uh, you know, it was corporal punishment was part of what a, ch a teacher was able to do. And then thank heavens we stopped doing that. So there have always been mechanisms that we have used within education to get people to about care, but they're very ineffective brute force mechanisms and actually a good teacher will know that actually the care or the inspiration that they bring to a topic is a much more effective kind of transfer device if you like so pull is what happens where you discover that you've got an illness a serious illness overnight you know you go to the see the doctor because you're not feeling too well and now you're diagnosed with something that could be life-threatening at that point you will google the heck out of that topic and you will pull information because now you care so Oh, let's connection with, with VR. So let's say you wanted somebody to care about third world poverty. You intuitively know how you would get somebody to do that. So you could talk at them, but actually flying them to a location, seeing how people are impacted by poverty, seeing people who are struggling to, to live on, on their income, that would move you. That would change how you feel about it. But of course you can't do that. It's costly. And so, um, you can do you, you begin to see the outlines of where I'm headed with this. You could do it in VR. You could give people an experience in VR. If you've got young men who don't perhaps care enough about sexual harassment or understand the impact that has on people, you could potentially do something like that in VR. And and that has been done to give people an experience of otherness, of what it's like to be somebody, let's say, with a disability, for example. And that can shift how people care about things. So there's sort of obvious examples like that, but there's also the potential to really bring topics to life, you know, in a way that we couldn't before. So history, for example, is another obvious one. Um, historical events are fantastic. Um, you say the kind of the French Revolution, for example, but they can end up being very dry when they're just converted into words on a screen. But to transport somebody to that period, to make them part of the angry mob or of the, you know, the bourgeoisie, and that would transform their experience. I'll end with one example. So I often ask my youngest daughter what she remembers and how was school today? We often do as parents. And she routinely says boring. It's boring. It's a common word. One day, she said, oh, it was great. I said, well, why was that? She said, well, they took us to a museum as a field trip and we were allowed to dress up in Victorian clothing. You know, So that experience stuck with her. It's obviously tough as educators to arrange something like that every day. VR makes that a lot easier. Yeah, especially with the notion of avatars now. Yeah. The, the other neat part of your book that really resonated with me was this idea of, you know, if, if you ask a person what was key or important, like your story with your daughter or someone who, you know, your wife was in the mall or out on the street and they come home and say, you know, what, what great happened today? You know, sometimes those memories, those stories are surrounded by what you call status dense situations. So these are celebrities or really high profile people that you might meet like Nelson, Nelson Mandela. So now that we have this new, you know, Pandora's box, if you will, AI tool, it is possible to create AI avatars in VR and give them a persona. Like you're going to code the AI avatar to maybe act 
similar to and respond similar to some famous celebrity or someone from the past. Talk to me about what you think about that and whether that would help sort of with this status dense caring. Yes and no. It's a super interesting question. I'll give you a couple of examples. I I met General Colin Powell some years ago at a learning event. And I won't forget that. We kind of shook hands and took a picture. Um, and two days ago, um, when I was at this learning event in Ireland, the company who had organized it had their CEO come. And I said to the guy who'd organized it, that's a really good thing, you know, because when the CEO shows up, he told a really interesting story about his own learning. Everybody feels valued and, and remembers that. But you have to think about that. That's why status-dense contexts work, because you it's about your your feelings are massively accentuated when you're in the presence of somebody like you know Michelle Obama or whatever you think wow this is a wow moment I feel valued this person is really important now you can create an AI avatar who is I don't know yeah Michelle Obama but if everybody knows that's a cheap option it will not have the same impact it will have some impact for sure but you you can't fool people as deeply as you might think. I think that um, that's why it's different seeing Clint Eastwood, you know, sitting in a movie theater than to meeting the guy in person, right? You know, because you, you, our, our emotions are finely tuned to context. They're not, they're not easily conned or tricked. So I do think that there are a whole host of effects which will play into that, frankly. Um, role modeling will be one. There's a whole series of bits of research around Bandura on observational learning. And basically what Bandura found, some of people listening will know this, is that if you can identify with somebody, it helps the learning from that individual. And so you can see immediately how that would be applied in the way you describe, which is that you're going to maximize learning opportunities where the AI avatar, whatever it is, is somebody that that individual can most keenly identify with or who aspires to be. And that will work. Yeah, but it, it works to an extent, given that they know that this is is kind of AI generated. I want to shift to play. I, I really appreciate you talking about you know this whole notion of educational systems being broken and using tests and the regime of standardized tests as a way to try and emotionally as well as you know cognitively get people to buy in. And there's not enough in my humble opinion, play in schools. And you talk a bit about the value of play, not only as an emotional trigger, but as a way of learning. And, and VR can play a huge role in that. And you talk, again, a little bit about it in your book, but you also say, you know, if we have a situation that is play for learning and we make it resemble a little bit like life with some consequences, but then you sort of, pause and say, you know, you don't want to make the consequences too serious. You know, you use the term de-risking mm. if we're going to sort of use this context, especially in VR. So uh, talk a bit about that and play VR and de-risking. Yeah, fascinating. So take, let's take it from the bottom from, if you like, a neurological level, because I think when the people, some people hear the word play, 
they have an emotional reaction against it because they've been brought up to believe, you know, as I have, there's this kind of work and play distinction. It can't all be play. So play becomes a bit of a dirty word. And certainly in the work that I do within organizations, I'd be very hesitant to use the word play. I'd probably use the word experimentation which probably frames it slightly better. And there's a guy called Yak Panksepp, who I mentioned earlier, who has done a lot of work with animal responses, mammal responses, and rats in particular. And it's fascinating. He finds that there's a brain system, which is basically an exploratory system, which is switched on, um, which is closely associated with learning. So young rats, like young adults, play a lot of their time. And this play is not, as you would expect from an evolutionary perspective, a waste of energy. It's actually part of how they learn. They're experimenting, kind of pushing boundaries. A tickle game, for example. You know, kids will play tickle games with each other with the parents. And this is a way of experimenting kind of boundaries. And But a game stops when somebody says, no, no, that's that's too much. Or, you know, now, now it's getting serious, you know, like a play fight, for example. And so we all already intuitively understand that we create play spaces where there is some kind of intuitive boundary where somebody still feels it's fun um, and the emotional consequences aren't too grave or severe. But when that boundary is crossed, it stops being play. Um, Panksepp found, for example, that with rats, as soon as you introduce the smell of a cat into a rat cage, play stops. Hmm. Period. Just ends. And they, they come out of exploratory mode. And so we see something quite similar with humans where stress will kill learning. So stress just kills that playful, exploratory, natural expression of learning. And so the fact that so many educational environments explicitly introduce elements of stress is entirely counterproductive. So what do we mean when we, when we say play and a new reference to you know, psychological safety and boundaries? Well, different people have different tolerances for failure. So what I've observed working with different people is that some people will try something once and if, if they fail, that's it. It's over, game over. No, that's that's enough. I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. So you have to gauge a person's tolerance if you want to create that kind of psychological safety. I'll give a very practical example. Um, we created a, an environment to teach people about inclusion and experience. And in this experience, we engineered the experience so that people were systematically excluded using a series of microaggressions. So they thought they were joining a team, right? This is how the experience worked. They thought they were joining a team to build some Lego or whatever. And they didn't know that we'd secretly told people to ignore them, to not make eye contact, to turn their back on them, to talk over them, to, you know, uh, just basically exclude them from the conversation to take their ideas. And I was running this experience at scale. I had 100 people or whatever going through it. Halfway through, uh, one lady left the room in tears you know, mm. to chase after and say, no, 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 it's, you know, look, it's okay. Look, this is all part of the experience. And, you know, but you take my point, which is some people were quite tolerant of that. And through that experience, which wasn't playful in the fun ex- sense, through that experience, they learned an important lesson. But other people that were, felt quite damaged by that. And that was one of my learnings about how when you're setting up an experimental environment where people can try things and maybe they work out, maybe they don't, different people will will tolerate different levels of kind of failure. It's a bit like if you're a Star Trek fan, I like Star Trek, the, uh, is it Kobayashi Maru, where everybody fails and they're training to be a captain. It's a situation because the Starfleet Academy <laughs> need to know how you're going to react to failure. And some people take it and some people struggle with it. So that's a little bit, I hope, 
of an answer to your question about psychological safety and setting up playful spaces. Yeah, I mean, I, I think now these emergences of these open virtual worlds like Roblox or Rec Room, I have a bit of a, a worry and a problem with them based on what you're talking about, because these are unsupervised, there's no pastoral care in a lot of these spaces. And therefore, you know, what's the resilience and tolerance of a child who goes in there and maybe, like you said, like the the story you talked about, about the lady who left in tears, there's no one there to support them. So I just, I worry, I guess, about this notion of how do we de-risk these situations where play is still allowed? Well, at school, as school teachers, we know this all the time. I'm supervising a playground. I'm yeah. there, you know, mostly to de-risk the kids to make sure that they're safe. And so, you know, that when I read that part of your book, it really struck me in that sort of open virtual world thing resonated with me. Yeah. That's why we, part of the reason teachers have a vital role, perhaps not the role they thought they had, perhaps the role they, they kind of intuitively know they're doing. Two days ago, I was listening to Kelly Harrington, Olympic gold medalist in boxing, on how she coped with failure. And she, it, you, you do get defeated, right? She talked about how she lost a match badly and how her reaction was, I just want to give up. I, I never want to do this again. And how her coach picked her up off the floor not quite literally, but emotionally, and said, look, this is part of growing. You know, this is part of how you develop and get better. And you have to understand it in that context. She talked explicitly about that as being critical to her success. But her coach was the person who softened the blows in a kind of a literal sense, I guess, who enabled her to reframe failure. And so I think that's often the role of the teacher, educator, as a mentor to help people to cope with what they're experiencing, to understand what they care about, and to connect with them in a way which allows, allows them to kind of develop and increase their resilience. And I think that's really a big part of what, what good teachers do. I'm going to circle back to push and pull for a minute because, you know, you allude to the fact that if someone really already cares about something, then, you know, they, they'll Google search it, they'll work hard at trying to get the information, you know, you call it kind of the checklist moment that if you really know that they're caring and are passionate about something, then they don't necessarily need this fantastical learning experience. We can give them a checklist and they're good to go because of that sort of motivation based on the affective domain. Yet in some VR experiences, like learning how to use an AED, they will put people in VR and they'll have a series of screens, almost like a PowerPoint presentation, but in VR where, you know, they have to do step one. You know, this is how you turn on the AED. You know, step two, here's how you put the paddles. Is this okay? Or does like, I guess I'm taking what you're saying about the checklist approach and I would argue that most people would care if someone is going into cardiac arrest. Therefore, you know, do we really need to train someone in a VR-like experience to, to do this when they have this checklist in front of them? 
No, and I think it's a rhetorical question because you know the answer. Imagine how ridiculous <laughs> it would be to create a VR environment where you could pick up a book and turn, turn the pages. It's like, why, why would you do that? I think, um, and, and it's not just me saying this. There's a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Itiel Draw, who's a neuroscientist who talks a lot about this. He does a lot of work with medical uh, training surgeons. And um, the late uh, uh, Professor Roger Shank, who I work with uh, within BP and in other areas, talking about how education sort of needs to change and it's that it needs a, a big part of it is give people opportunities to practice the things that they're going to be doing so actually it's a fantastically inefficient way to learn how to be an effective doctor just reading all the textbooks you might read the textbooks but only after you've tried to do something and failed because then now you want to know and you pull. So you lead with the experience. So a good application would be to allow people to practice medical procedures and then on the basis of success or failure or whatever, dip into the literature around that. Um, another good example you could give people is um, aircraft aviation training, training to fly you know, uh, an aircraft. You could give teenagers, kids, a really good flight simulator. You can today. And then just say, have a go at it. And without having to read any manuals at all, they will figure out how to fly that aircraft. Now, they may not figure out the safest way to do it. They may crash a great many times on the way. But then the textbook learning can kind of come at the fringes after that. But basically set up an environment where people can have a go at something. And 90% of the learning will happen that way. And as they start to want to improve what they're doing or refine their approach, if they think, why are my landings always bumpy? right? Why are my landings always bumpy? They might go off and read some information about, you know, what are the things that you can do rather than just what we do today, which is just trying to dump a whole load of content on people um, who don't have any context for application, emotional, effective context for application, I might add. <laughs> the other thing that struck me when I was talking about that example of the AED that maybe lends some credence to using it in VR is, do people get, let's say they do care, they might get crippled at going through the checklist due to the sheer emotional response of being in this emergency situation. If that's the case, is practice in VR okay in that in that instance? Yeah, it's a really good example. So there are contexts where, so, so one of the big things that I popularize within my industry is um, resources, not courses. So in many cases, you don't need to put people on a course. You just build performance support, you know, things that they can look at at the point of need, which is a bit like, like the sat-nav idea. It's now we all have satellite navigation or GPS in our car, which kind of tells us where to go. But there are specific circumstances where you do not want people to be looking things up. So I would encounter those at BP, right? So to do an exact example, if somebody is escaping an oil rig that is on fire, you do not want them, you know, basically looking at a little map and trying to figure out the route because the effective nature of cognition this is why people when they're in a panic will forget even the most basic things like how to drive a car because memory is context sensitive as people like Bandley and Hitch showed so flooding the individual with um, with uh, all of the kind of the endorphins or whatever that are associated with panic changes your ability to kind of memorize things and think clearly so sometimes a checklist is the right thing but other times you just have to train something to make it instinctive and i think there are a number of applications military applications for example certainly at bp where vr has tremendous potential because you're looking at an environment where somebody in a panic state 
won't be able to think kind of rationally. So you just need to train an instinctive response. And the only way you're going to do that is by recreating the environment. Because if you train it in the wrong environment, it won't transfer. Let me give an example. I, I had to do offshore training where you have to uh, train to, for a ditching where you're in a helicopter. Now, you could do that um, digitally. You could have like a little e-learning course or you could do it reading. But the problem is that in a real environment, that's a very different experience. So what they actually do is, and I, I went through this training, they, they strap you into a helicopter fuselage in a, a, attached to a crane and they dunk you in a swimming pool, giant swimming pool, and you have to escape. And the beauty of that is because that learning environment is so similar to the real environment, the learning transfers. So VR has the potential to take us quite some way there to recreate environments which feel very similar to the real environment. So for example, dealing with an angry customer so that we can actually learn in the same context as, as we'll be performing. Listen, I'm mindful of time, Nick. Uh, anything maybe that we haven't talked about that you think might be valuable uh, to the listeners as it pertains to how we learn and how we learn in these new emerging immersive mediums? Yeah, I guess I, I wonder a little bit about, because we, we can all see the opportunity, but what's the commercial model that will realize that opportunity? You know, if you work for a big organization, there's a big budget for creating simulations on important things. But you and I can talk in the abstract about creating VR simulations of, you know, French Revolution or, you know, um, Amazonian jungles. But who is going to put the investment in that's going to be required to to get that to be the experience that learners actually need in a world where education is just looking at cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts. So I think there's, there is a kind of a worry. I know it's perhaps not what you were expecting me to talk about, but there's a worry about the kind of the commercial frame that sits around this world and whether or not like we'll actually be able to realize it without just depending on the goodwill of hobbyists, you know, who, who want to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Well said. And, uh, you know, changing this giant, huge cruise ship, which we call, education or schooling is so difficult. But anyway, how, how could people get a hold of you if they wanted to learn more about your book or other things that you talk about? Oh, it's tough to avoid me these days. I'm on pretty much every <laughs> platform being an annoyance. So I'm a bit of I'm a loud mouth on LinkedIn, Nick Shackleton-Jones. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm even on TikTok now. Uh, but that that's less kind of you know directive. So I talk on Twitter. Uh, it's more kind of focused around learning. Um, I blog a little bit. Most of what I, I talk about in relation to learning is more on the kind of the corporate learning side, but might have some relevance to education, um, which is on LinkedIn. The book you already mentioned, so if people are interested, like in a cover-to-cover -cover version, how people learn, you know, you can find that. And then I just rant about random things um, on TikTok. So, yeah. Amazing. Nick, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to talk about VR for us. I enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me.